Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. production. Good morning. I can see you. Good morning. Yeah, little technical difficulties this morning, but that's that's hotel Wi-Fi for you. <laughs> and where are you in the world? I am still in Ohio, and I'm headed to Indiana shortly to do a reteach breach seminar there, and then I'll be back home the end of the month, end of January, which this won't come out till February, but end of January I'll be back in Utah, looking so forward to being back in Utah. Great. Are you enjoying this new life, traveling around and teaching and all of that? You still enjoying it? Yeah. Yeah. I've only been doing it for a short period of time. I better be enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. No, Good. no. I, I really, I really am. I, I have to learn how to calm my body down though. Mm -hmm. my, my body wants to go, go, go. And there's a lot of times where there, there's not just that much going on. And it's okay. And I need to use that time more wisely. I need to read books. I need to watch less television. The weather has been really crappy, so it's not like I wouldn't normally get outside. But yeah. Yeah. You're you're reacclimating to a new lifestyle. It's good. That's good. Awareness. It's gonna take some time. It does take time. You know, it, I've been doing the same thing for 40 years. Yeah. So it's in LA. Uh, in Los Angeles. Yeah. 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 You're, you're in a very different place now. I'll tell you, though, um, I listen to some new stuff that comes out of California, and I am just so happy to be out of there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Apparently, the latest thing now is they want to tax the wealth of people who leave the state. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I got out just under the wire. <laughs> Hilarious. Goodness gracious. Well, it's creative. You got to give them that. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. Yeah, creative is a is a nice word for saying it's like utterly stupid. They have policies that drive wealthy people out. I'm not necessarily a wealthy person, drives some like normal people out of the state. And then they want to tax the people that are leaving to support the policies that drove the people that are leaving out of the state. Yeah. Right. Dumb. Okay. So dumb, dumb, dumb. yeah. So <laughs> How about I'm you? Waiting. Yeah, I'm waiting for one more birth. And then in a little, about two weeks, I'm leaving for Bali. So I'm just getting ready and preparing. And yeah, I'll be in Bali for an entire month and doing some work with the with Robin Lim and the birth center there and learning and hopefully doing a little recording for my Bridge Midwives project. So super excited about all that. Hey, so listen, do you have a date that you're leaving for Bali? Yeah, um, February 10th. Okay. Well, to, yeah. Everyone, yeah. to everyone listening, I want to say the usual good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night. And I think that, Bliss, you had a question before I have some things to read. So what's your question? Oh, um, fellow traveler was asking, hi, Bliss, I've been listening to your podcast and love it so much. I'm 35 weeks pregnant and was wondering your thoughts on letting tears heal naturally without sutures. I have read many things suggesting that the sutured area often leads to pain in the long term at that site, especially during sex postpartum. Reading some interesting stuff about resting and keeping your legs closed, letting it heal on its own without sutures, as its mucous membrane and the healing process is rapid. Any thoughts on this in advance? Thank you, Sherry, for your question. And we did an entire episode 
episode 256, Pushing, Tearing, and Repairing. So I would really recommend that you go and check that out. But yes, there are three reasons why we would suture just quickly. One is it's bleeding like any other part of the body and we need to stop the bleeding. So that would be an indication that you need to suture, that you're in the muscle. Muscle doesn't heal the same way that tissue does. So the muscle has to be brought together with sutures or if there's something cosmetic. So if something is like kind of hanging off and is not going to just heal naturally, then we want to bring those tissues back together. But I definitely, and I think uh, Dr. Fishbein, Dr. Stu also does this as well, although he's, you know, a surgeon, so he can repair some really difficult tears is that, you know, if it approximates and you feel like it's just in the tissue, then, then for women who really will rest and stay in bed. And sometimes women who have had a previous delivery don't always follow that advice. But if you can really rest and stay in bed and keep your legs closed, it is the best because the injecting the lidocaine and also putting in the suturing material causes more trauma to the tissue. And I think you're right. From my personal experience, the women that are sutured, it takes a lot longer to heal than the women who could just kind of heal on their own. Anything you want to add? Yeah. I mean, as surgeons, we're trained to sew everything back together again, but I've learned from you guys to back off on these small superficial tears or paper, what you know, you call a paper cut type things, or, or even a small first degree tear that's just involving the perineum tissue itself. If it falls right back together again, you're right. Sometimes the suture is, is a foreign substance and can some bodies react to it and you are injecting with lidocaine and then you're distorting the tissues a little bit. So we don't have to stitch everything, but again, we were trained to stitch everything. So we have to kind of rethink how we do stuff. Yeah. yeah, good question though. Good question. Okay, what you got for us? Well, speaking of, rethink, speaking of rethinking how we do stuff, uh, this was a communication I had with Casey, a fellow traveler on Instagram. And she writes, hi, Dr. Stewart. I have another question for you. We just had a scan done at 28 weeks and have come to find out we have a velamentous cord insertion. Curious if you have any podcast episodes on this topic. I think we do somewhere, didn't we? We do. The ultrasound doctor told our midwife that, quote, we should not have a home birth, unquote. And it's apparent that we are pushing her comfort limits, but now I'm on the hunt for more info. Google is scary is a scary place, but my heart is telling yeah, me that- do it. What? <laughs> I said, yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. But my heart is telling me that it's just another variation of normal. Do you have any insight on this topic? Thank you in advance. So I wrote back to her, and this was in October. I wrote back to her, hi, Casey. Velamentous insertion is rare and rarely can cause a problem, but not a contraindication to home birth for most of us. Many are only discovered after delivery. It's like placenta comes out and you go, everybody goes, oh, look at that. I'm not sure. Yeah, that man, remember, I sent you a picture actually from one of my last deliveries that had, um, what do you call that? I don't know how to pronounce it. Sentient low. Yeah, a sex, sex insurance lobe. Sex insurance lobe. Yeah, that was an and impressive. No one That was an impressive picture, by the way. But our listeners can't see it, so I, I'll I'll not elaborate. <laughs> not sure <laughs> the ultrasound doctor should be making home birth recommendations, but that is another topic. Listening yes. to this heartbeat and labor is important, and if abnormalities are heard, then transport may be the best course. But to assume that it's not necessary. Uh, she says, "I love you" with a teary-eyed emoji. Thank you for the quick response and for everything that you do. Just got back from our midwife appointment. And although she hasn't ruled us out as high risk yet, 
She did want us to know that in the rare case that it does become a problem, she is not equipped to save the baby's life should something go wrong. Doing research now, I'm just not convinced that a 1% chance or something like that of going wrong is worth switching to a hospital birth if there's still a 99% chance that everything could go right. So we had a Zoom meeting and we talked about this on Zoom. And she said, we had a great time chatting with you. It was everything we needed to put this anxiety behind us and move forward with our home birth journey. Then she wrote me yesterday and she says, hi, Dr. Stu, happy new year. Mike and I have an update for you since our last Zoom call in October. We did end up finding a new midwife at 30 weeks pregnant who was comfortable assisting us with our home birth, velamentous cord insertion and all. Fast forward to 41 weeks pregnant, we had a 12 to 14 hour labor and a successful home birth in a birth pool. The placenta was birthed about 30 minutes after baby with no issues. Couldn't have asked for a better experience and so happy we stuck to our original plans to birth at home despite the diagnosis. Thank you again for all your expert advice and helping us feel confident in our decision. It was truly the best day of our lives birthing our son at home. Stay well. We appreciate that. Casey, Mike, and baby Bowden. Ah, um, and I looked at 286. So it was pretty recent. We did velamentous cord insertion if anybody wants to go back and. Yeah, we might have, we might have done it based on her first letter from October for all I remember, but people ask. Yeah. And the follow-up again, it's important. It's like thinking out of the box. It's like not everything needs to be sewn and not every velamentous insertion. Now that we're seeing them on ultrasound in 20 weeks or whatever, needs to suddenly change everybody's plan. There's nothing you can do about a velamentous insertion. It's not usually a problem. If it, if the vessels splay out over the cervix, something called the vasa previa, well, that's a whole different story. But if it's high up in the uterus, and again, it really is not a problem. There's very little stress put on the cord at that point, not until the baby is out. And then you just have to be careful not to do any uh, pulling on the cord. Mm. Right. Yep. Or break the bag. Break the bag. I wanted to also mention that I was just interviewed for two uh, segments of the Radiant Mission podcast. And if people want to look them up, support them, that would be great. You can find them on your podcast app. That's the Radiant Mission podcast. There's We, we talked for so long, they broke it into two episodes, which is not surprising once people turn me on and wind me up. There you go. I get going. <laughs> yeah. um, real, real quickly, there were two articles in the American Journal of OBGYN that came out this month. One of them is about universal screening for cervical length with mm-hmm. vaginal ultrasound. You already know what I think about that. Okay. It's just another reason. I know what I think. I know what you think about it too. It's another reason to use use technology uh, and to find things that are potentially wrong. But they say that universal screening on every pregnant woman, which I guess is redundant or or a tautology because universal screening would imply every pregnant woman, wouldn't it? Uh, They found a quote, significant unquote reduction in preterm delivery when it was picked up early and people were treated with progesterone or a cerclage uh, or bed rest. And, uh, but then I looked at the numbers and the rate of preterm delivery dropped from 5.8% to 5.6%. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> I don't know what significant means, but it doesn't mean the same thing to them that I think it means to most of the people listening to this podcast. Um, and right. it doesn't say anything about the downside of what is found when you do unnecessary or extra ultrasounds. Or the fact that ultrasound itself may be a problem. So right, right. Uh, again, they're only looking at one endpoint, and that is a live baby in the bassinet. The second article and extra, extra things to bill for. Oh yeah, yeah. You always remember that. You know, I think about that, and then it sort of goes in one ear and out the other. But you're right. 
It's more testing for maternal fetal medicine doctors. So why not? But they did come out with one article that said umbilical cord milking in non-vigorous infants. And it was, I think, infants from 34 to 39 or 40 weeks. And they found that if you milk the cord in a baby that is non-vigorous, which means a baby that obviously needs help, comes out floppy or whatever else, rather than cutting the cord, you may not have any change in NICU admissions in the hospital setting, but you do get increase in baby hemoglobin, a decrease in the need for CRP, and a decrease in the rate of hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. So that is a really good thing to remember. Uh, not that we in the home birth are, are cutting cords early, but for those people that cut cords early, if you have a baby that's floppy, the last thing you want to do is cut that cord early. And you Absolutely. want to, and if it's baby's heart isn't pumping a lot or the cord is a bit flaccid, then milking that blood into the cord. People used to say things silly like, well, if you do that, the baby will get polycythemic and will get jaundiced and stuff like that. You know, I don't think that that's necessarily true, but even if it is, if you can decrease the rate of CRP and HIE, then then do that. So this gets back to the whole thing about science. And we talk about it in previous podcasts as well, science being corrupted and not really knowing who to trust, you know, depending on who's funding it and what journal it's in and, and who wrote it and what their purpose is. So you have to take both of these articles with a grain of salt. But I guess my point of reference is what feels right in my gut. And the first one feels right. silly and the second one feels good. So that's how I do it. So Bliss, let's talk about one of our sponsors, Needed, and all their great products. Yeah, and I uh, hope you guys caught the episode with uh, with Julie, where we talk all about her births and relationship and how she developed this company. Because, you know, Stu and I are really particular about how who we bring on to partner with. And Needed is an amazing company. And they have really put a lot of effort into making sure that you guys are getting amazing, good quality products. And we want to pass that on to you. One of the things I really love about Needed's line, besides the attention to detail, is that they do have a powdered prenatal vitamin for those of you who, you know, maybe don't really like to take pills or are feeling nauseous. And it's something that you can add into a smoothie with beautiful collagen protein that they have available as well and and get you need and then they also have that amazing line of uh, men's products too and preconception partnering the preconception before you're actually even pregnant so and then what about this new product that they just yeah well you you? first of all go to thisisneeded.com and check out their whole menu of different items and, and pick out the ones that seem the, to fit your needs, but they have a new one. It's called egg quality support. It's for women considering getting pregnant and it combines five targeted and optimally dosed antioxidants to improve egg quality and support related fertility outcomes. This is one of the only egg quality products and the only egg quality support on the market that does not contain overlapping ingredients you'll find in a prenatal like folate. In addition, we've created our egg quality support plan to even further optimally nourish those trying to conceive. The egg quality support plan pairs our new egg quality support with our standalone CoQ10 in the active antioxidant form Ubiquinol. So try their new product and try all their old products and support them because they support us. And go to uh, go to thisisneeded.com, use the code word birthing instincts all caps, and you'll save 20% off you know, one-time order or the first three month subscription at thisisneeded.com, code word birthing instincts. Thanks, needed. Thanks, Needed. 
So I'm going to bring Kelly in right now. Great. So I just want to give a little intro to you, Kelly. You're Kelly Rain Collin, and you're founder of Director of Healthy Minds Consulting. And you completed two bachelor's degrees from Cal State University, Northridge, child development with a specialization in child mental health and psychology. And you got your master's degree from that bastion of quality, Harvard Graduate School of Education, <laughs> with a specialization in risk and, and prevention. This unique academic background provided the foundation for Kelly's, Kelly Rain's work with children who are simultaneously experiencing educational and mental health difficulties. And, you know, that's really not why we're having you on. <laughs> we're having no, you on because <laughs> you're the mother of two and you have compelling, <laughs> compelling birth stories that we are tangentially related to. And we thought that it would be really interesting to hear that. I haven't seen you in several years, uh, but it's really good to see you now. And Thank we you. want to talk a little bit about that. So I'm going to turn this over to Bliss and let her take it from here. Yeah. Kelly was... Um, client of Dr. Stu's when I was a student. And the the night that your baby was born, Tavi, it was Thanksgiving and Dr. Stu was out of town and two of his clients went into labor simultaneously. <laughs> so it was a wild night. And you're going to get to tell your story because unfortunately I was asked to stay at the other birth and I was so looking forward to being with you guys that evening, but a whole other came for you and you guys had an amazing delivery. And we wanted to talk a little bit about that, but you know, it was interesting because you and I kept in touch on Facebook and I knew that you had moved to Washington and you were planning to have another delivery with another team, obviously, because you moved up there mm -hmm. and you had alluded to, you know, feeling like there was a lot of fear in regards to your pregnancy and delivery. And I had asked you, I think this was many, many months ago, if you would be willing to come on and share your experience, because I think it's so interesting to just talk about the difference in care, even amongst community-based providers. So um, we would, you know, we would love to hear about all of that. But why don't we start with your decision to have a home birth when you were first pregnant? How did that okay. come about? How did you make I'm trying to think back. <laughs> I know when we first were pregnant um, with Javi, my son, we were looking at different places to birth and, you know, we toured UCLA. They had a birthing center with midwives and I almost had a panic attack just in the tour. <laughs> my husband, Derek, was holding my hand and <clears throat> I realized like this is this is not where I want to be. Like, I do not want to be in a hospital. For me, it was just very anxiety producing to even be on the tour, to be in that space. And so we looked into um, birthing centers that seemed like that would be a more comfortable space for us. And after learning more, came to the understanding that basically the birthing center or home, the only difference is you have to stick the kid in the car and transport him home afterwards. <laughs> so that was the biggest difference that we noticed. And, you know, after our conversation, we said, well, why would we want to stick him in the car if we can just be at home and be done? So that was kind of our decision process for there. But for me, it, it was much less anxiety producing to consider being at home, being surrounded by people I love and being able to have uh, some some measure of control and decision making power <laughs> that doesn't always go with the um, what make, what, birthing. What, Kelly, 
Kelly, what makes your home birth story so interesting for as a variation was that somewhere early in the pregnancy, we found out some information about Tavi. And mm -hmm. yet we continued with the same plan. Well, I would love you to talk about that and how that worked. And then I'll 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 pitch in and Bliss and I will chime in. But tell us, tell us the story of how sure. we found out that information. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I we found out through one of the typical early blood tests that's offered to moms that our son likely had trisomy 21, typically referred to as Down syndrome. And uh, so went through a brief 24-hour period of grieving and, and not understanding and trying to figure out what that meant for us. Uh, and pretty quickly came to the conclusion that he was the exact same being we were already in love with the day before, and we just had new information. And so we took that information and ran with it and decided to, you know, continue getting more information and do what we needed to do to make everything as best as possible for him. So that was our very, very brief, like, period of like, whoa, what's going on? Okay, something new. Were you already in care with us at that point when we found that out? No, we were, we had originally gone to a midwifery group in Long Beach thinking we were going to use a, 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 a birthing center there. And then um, it changed our minds. And I was familiar with you, Dr. Stu, through Liz's previous work at the birthing center that she had in the sanctuary. And I had a couple friends that were connected to that group and had already been to some of the events that you guys had put on on different related topics and things. So I had already had some interest in that and so had tangential connections. And so mm -hmm. when we we're looking at having a home birth and, you know, especially with potential nuances in the birth process with a, a baby trisomy 21, I'm like, oh, you know what, let's go check out Dr. Stu and see if, if that's a good match for us. Yeah, that's how we got it. And, and that felt like a, you know, given Tavi's diagnosis that felt like another level of insurance for you to have to have a doctor present. <laughs> so it was really who wasn't present. Um, really connected to his diagnosis so much as our understanding at the time was that you know midwives have a the ability to do you know A through M. <laughs> and Dr. Stu can do in through P, you know, or something, um, you know, with, with regard yeah. to, uh, you know, extra options. And so we wanted those extra options yeah. available. Yeah. And one of the things with trisomy 21 is that there's often some things going on with their heart, correct? It's potential. Yes. And so you guys went and did some additional consulting to see if it was still, if you still comfortable having a home birth and, and knowing that that would be a safe option, correct? Sort of. We felt comfortable with the home birth period. Yeah. Um, yeah. And unless somebody gave us some specific information that said, here's why it's not okay. We were, we were going to go forward with it. Yeah. Um, and so we ended up kind of working with the team uh, outside of you guys that the additional team members that came in to work with Tavi because he did have a condition of VSD, ventricular septal defect. 
basically a hole in his heart. And so we worked with the cardiologist and another specialist that does like in-depth ultrasounds and stuff to see if anything else is going on. Like he had a clubbed foot, which is not typical for trisomy 21, but for him, that was just another, you know, thing that we were looking at and trying to address and figure out, was there something else going on to, you know, just lots of questions to kind of filter through. Uh, but it was always our goal to continue to have that, the, the home birth. And so we really worked with the team on, you know, is there any reason that this is not acceptable? And if so, why were the questions yeah. that we asked? Yeah, if I can, if I can, oh, go ahead. Please, no, go ahead, Stu. I was going to say, if I could chime in here, this is this is the beauty of what we had in Los Angeles for a while, which was the collaboration of, of, of good-hearted people. I have a really dear friend. I've mentioned her on the podcast before. She's a maternal fetal medicine specialist, Dr. Kathleen Bradley. And she, I referred you to her, I think, and, and she referred you then after right. she found these diagnoses, she referred you, I think, to Dr. Sklansky at UCLA. And I want to give these people credit because not one of these people said to you, oh my God, this is horrible. We can't have a home birth. You know, you have to have this in the hospital. You have to be induced to 39 weeks and you have to, baby has to go to the NIC. Nobody said that the whole way all along. They all agreed with our logic, Kelly and Derek and I and the team that whether the baby needs attention or not after birth shouldn't affect the way the baby, the, the experience mom has and the way the baby is given birth to. You know, the birth is still the birth and she has to give birth someplace. So why not at home? Unless they thought the baby was going to need immediate attention. And the consensus from everyone was, no, the baby will not need immediate attention, that there will be the likelihood that the VSD will cause the baby to have lower O2 saturations was, was something that we had discussed, right, Kelly? Correct. Yeah, that was the only cons the in moment right at birth concern was that the pulse ox might be fluctuating and so requested that we had oxygen present. Right. And so we when when you did give birth and unfortunately it was Thanksgiving and I was home with my family, but I you know, I I sort of remember every detail third party is that they gave the baby oxygen, the pulse ox was showing the baby's O2 sats were lower than what we would like. Uh, so at some point, I don't know, was it an hour, an hour and a half, two hours after birth? How long did we wait until we decided to <laughs> take the baby to the hospital? Um, we were we were in constant conversations about it. And and his pulse ox was fluctuating. So it was going up and down. And it wasn't going down scary low, but it was right, it was just slightly below the level that Dr. Solansky had said, like you should, you should go in and have this checked, right? So it kept going down and up and down and up. And so we decided, you know what, let's just be cautious and make sure that everything's okay. And so we worked with the, the midwives there. And and as a quick piece on that, that I think is interesting is that we had planned ahead of time for this contingency and had contacted a number of the NICUs around and had looked into who would be able to assist in these kinds of situations if we needed to take Tavi into the NICU, if we needed to take him in right away, which hospitals could actually work with him. And the local, the one closest to us did not have the level of NICU that could address um, his needs with the heart issues and stuff. And so we were already connected to UCLA and had decided to go there, which was a little farther drive, but doable and right. had all the services that we needed. So 
the midwives got on the phone when it was time to coordinate services and try to help kind of get the process started so that the the ER would be expecting us and know what was coming ahead of time, which I thought was really great. And again, that coordination of services was beautiful there. But then they first told her like, no, 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 go, you know, call the ambulance and go to whatever's closest. But we had already checked out and knew that that was not an option. So the midwives obligingly called the local (laughs) NICU and kind of followed up on everything they were requested to do. Again, got the like, no, we can't do that. And so, you know, after all of that, again, double checking everything, we ended up going to UCLA. I was not about to call an ambulance. He was not in any immediate danger. Um, We had blow by oxygen available. That was something we had prepped ahead of time. Um, So when it was time and we decided that we needed to go, my husband drove the car. The midwife came with us in the car and I sat, you know, next to Tavi and his little, little bitty car seat. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, the midwife held the oxygen and we were there with him the whole time um, and just, and drove in safely. There was, there was no, no like ambulance needed, no urgency on that kind of end. And the beautiful part of that you still had to have a beautiful, peaceful home delivery, even though we had this contingency plan to follow up and just make sure that, you know, everything was okay. You, you know, you had the benefit of being able to do that. And if I remember correctly, I was with a a mom who had already had a baby. And so we really anticipated that she was going to deliver before you, even though you were starting to have signs of labor. But if I remember correctly, you went pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. From the time we realized this was like, oh, it's 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 happening now. And we had gone to Thanksgiving dinner, like the mucus plug had, had discharged early in the morning and we connected with everybody and and they were like, ah, you're probably fine. Go to dinner. You know, you're good. Let us know when things get to, you know, this point, you know. And by the end of dinner, I was like, I think, I think we gotta go home. <laughs> and by the time we wrapped stuff up and said goodbye. We were, we were in Pasadena for dinner and we lived in Redondo beach. Um, so we wrapped things up. And by the time we got in the car, we started timing things. And I don't remember exactly how far along it was, but you know, the response was, okay, well, let us know when you're this far along, you know, and about 10, 15 minutes down the freeway, we texted them back with like, there we are. Yeah, yeah. At the house. <laughs> That's what I remember. And how old is Tavi now? Seven? Yes, he's seven. Yeah, yeah. Just I'd like to finish, I'd like to finish a little bit more of the story because I sure. one of the stories, the part of the impressive for me was uh first of all, you had your home birth with your Downs baby and your geriatric I'm pregnancy. Gonna, I'm gonna your, jump in real quick. I'm gonna yes. jump in. Yes. And and ask and ask to shift the terminology and not okay. say downs. Okay. Teach us. So with a with a child with yeah with a baby with trisomy twenty one we would prefer or anything but so I'll ask for that show. Oh, so what would you say then? You could say Down syndrome, um, but Down's baby is not considered cooth. Oh, okay. Well, well, I've never been. Thank you for teaching us. Yeah, I've often been called uncouth. Oh, thanks. So that, that, that felt felt right <laughs> felt right at home. All right. So, but you know, and you and your and your geriatric pregnancy and all that. And we were still able, we were still able to do this home birth that where Tavi had the benefit of being born in, the, in its, your home with your home bacteria and be skin to skin 
and all that stuff for those first couple hours. And then when you got to the hospital, I just, I know that this is a story that I was told was that there were like 20 people in the ER waiting for Tavi. And all they did was give Tavi like blow by oxygen for like 24 hours and then send him home, right? Kind of, yeah, you've got part of it. So I can clarify, they, um, because the midwives were so great at coordinating and, and letting everybody know ahead of time what was happening, the ER heard like, oh my God, this brand new baby was just born. He's born at home. He's not breathing right. Like get all the specialists here now was kind of their <laughs> approach. And so when we arrived, there were, it was probably 10 to 12 people standing around, you know, a, a bed with all the ER lights and everything over it. And everybody was just like tense and ready, like, okay, we're going to go. Um, and there were interns and everything too, you know, like everybody was there to see this and figure it out. Um, and I just held him for a while <laughs> and, you know, we, put him down when needed, but they were trying to poke him and try to get an IV started. And we were like, no, stop. You need to explain to us why this is needed. And at first, everybody was like deer in the headlights because they they were like, what? What? Well, well, we have to do this because it's we have to do this. Like <laughs> they couldn't think through why it was actually needed. It's just automatic. This is what we do. Individualizing um, your care. Yeah. Right. So nobody, nobody actually, nobody asked them that. <laughs> so we did. Mm -hmm. And so Derek was great about just continuing to ask until one person was actually able to shift and go, Oh, this is what they need to know, understand. They need to understand, like, why is this necessary? And we were able to say, like, how likely is that? You know, and we were able to finally make an informed decision. At that time, we did say, Okay, you can do it. I don't remember the exact rationale they had given, but they were never able to actually get it done anyways. <laughs> so they tried multiple times, but I feel badly that they just kept poking him. And I'm like, okay, stop, just, just stop. Because <laughs> they actually couldn't do it. But it was interesting in a funny, sad kind of way to me to be able to see that like nobody could even answer. Well, that Kelly, question. Kelly, if they couldn't and do they, it, they couldn't do it but it was so necessary, then was it really necessary? If they just stopped. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, it, was a, it was a what if. It's a what if, like, something happens, then we would be ready. And I'm like, how likely is it that that's going to happen? And why are you poking my baby? He was just born. If he doesn't need to be poked, quit poking him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so... We got through that piece and then they did some assessments and checked him out and we're trying to figure it out. And they decided to do, uh, I believe it was uh, an echocardiogram. If I'm getting the words right. And so they did that and for a while and it took a while for the on-call cardiologist specialist to get there, maybe two hours by the time all of that happened. And once he got there and looked over it, he's like, you're fine, go home. Like I, I run a camp for kids with heart conditions. They have pulse oxes much lower than this. They run around all the time. They sit down, take a break when they need to, and they go off and run again. You're fine. So if he turns blue, call me. <laughs> right. And then so he like, had, thank you. Yeah. And then he had heart surgery later down the road to correct the later. defect in yeah. his heart. Yeah. 
and he's a healthy. Yeah, three months old. Yeah, and he's a healthy, beautiful, rambunctious, amazing seven-year-old boy now. Exactly. Yeah, that's amazing. Salty AF. I have my Salty AF water bottle here. (laughs) Um, Element is one of our sponsors, LMNT, and they are a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the BS, like us. Like us, right? I love when you say that. It's, I look forward to it every week. It's got electrolytes in it, which is what you really need when you need a, a replenishment, when you're sweating, when you're working out, when you're in labor, when you've been up for 80 hours, uh, <laughs> taking care of somebody in labor. Yeah. It would have been good. You might've been more refreshed if you would have had your element. And I probably would have. Right. It's really good for those sorts of situations. And it's, and uh, it, it's so much better than some of the other drinks which have sugar or other fake sugars or things in them, as you know that I drink. I shouldn't, but I do. So um, and it comes in multiple flavors. Bliss's favorite is uh, uh, mango chili and mine is raspberry, mm-hmm. but it comes in. Let's see, I think I got to memorize now. Citrus and ras- well, raspberry is my favorite and um, orange and lemon habanero and uh, watermelon, watermelon, and unflavored, unflavored. And chocolate salt, right. Anyway, if you go to drinkelement.com, that's drinkelement.com and put in the code word birthing instincts, you'll get a free sample pack with any order. Uh, Please uh, support them as they support the podcast. And we just want to send our gratitude to them. Thank you, Element. Thanks, Element. I would love to hear about your next pregnancy and and choosing your providers up there and you know what you kind of mentioned to me about noticing some of the I think when we spoke recently you had said you felt like there was not only fear but some discrimination that was going on so I would love for you to talk to our listeners about the difference that you experienced sure it was it was very very different experience so we moved um to Washington from from Los Angeles area moved to Washington near, near the Portland, Oregon area. We're just over the border. Not long after we got pregnant and so it was just a few months along and transition and care had looked into midwifery places up here ahead of time because we wanted to again, have a home birth and uh, connected with one that seemed like it was going to be a good match. It was a midwifery group that worked to love together collaboratively and had a phone appointment even before we moved to consult with them and try to transition care. And once we got up here, we met with them and kind of regularly with different people in the group um, for just regular check-ins and whatever needed to be addressed. And as the pregnancy got further along, one of the midwives in the group um, at one of our appointments said uh, something about well, because of your age, you're at higher risk of stillbirth. And Derek and I were kind of taken aback, like, A, why are you saying this? How does that help me? Like, what could I do about it? Like, nothing. <laughs> and B, we asked questions. We were like, okay, so why is that? And she wasn't able to answer. She didn't know the answer to that. And we were encouraging, like, we'd like to know more. And we left that appointment with a lot of question marks hanging over our head and just kind of funky feeling in our gut and followed up with some phone calls and 
the end result after just trying to gather more information and trying to learn more was this this one midwife in the group was not comfortable serving us because of this supposed um, increase in stillbirth. And we were starting to agree that this may not be the right match. And the next thing we knew, we got a letter in the mail that discontinued services. I was seven months along in a pandemic where everybody wants to have a home birth to stay out of the hospital. (laughs) So everybody's full. So it was 2020. So it was 2020. It was 2020, 2021, the beginning of 2021. Okay. Okay. Um, At that point, everything was still pretty shut down here. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm seven months along and frantically looking for another midwife to be able to assist, trying to find someone who's a good match, contemplating, well, what does it look like if we do a free birth and then just call the local paramedics if we need something? Like Mm -hmm. not really what I wanted. Like if I was totally, you know, in that space and wanted that, great. Wasn't, didn't feel a hundred percent like what I I wanted and needed for me. So I'd rather have somebody there to help guide things and give me information that I don't have and kind of help me through the process. And um, so we we called everyone and anybody who wasn't available or was full, we asked for referrals to other places that they knew and we call all of them and finally found one person who had an opening and was willing to take us. A lot of people were concerned and fear had fear about we live kind of far away from a hospital it's at least 30 40 minutes drive to the nearest hospital which in LA is like it's right around the corner (laughs) and it takes 30 40 minutes to get there so we're kind of like whatever Um, right (laughs) but out here that was that was something that brought up a lot of fear for a number of the midwives we talked to was like if we had to transfer like you're so far away so there was that, um, and and I think there were other factors. A lot of people were just, you know, had a lot of concerns and question marks. There seems to be some some of the laws around like what ifs happen around here. That if something should happen on your caseload, you get some kind of mark on your your record that could impact your licensing, kind of thing. That's my understanding of some of the concerns that were brought up too. So. Um, so anyways, we finally found one midwife who had space on her, um, you know, around the time frame that we were potentially going to birth and it was willing to take us and seemed at the time like a good enough match. Like it was okay. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't amazing, but um, at the time we felt it was better than nothing um, that it would be, it would be okay. Um, so we went, we went forward with that. And she was also um, certified for the local hospital that we would have gone to if we needed to go to a hospital. So we thought, okay, well, maybe that's a good thing that she's, you know, could flow and actually be the same midwife with at home. Or if we needed to go to the hospital, she could be there too. Um, mm-hmm. And she knows them and connect. So yeah. Yeah. So that was some of our, some of our thinking. So we ended up transitioning at seven months along to a new person. Before you go on with okay. the story, before you go on with the story, can I ask a couple of back questions? Backward, is that okay? Yes. Okay. So mm-hmm. when they brought this, they knew how old you were when you first came into the practice, but they obviously didn't bring it up until you know six, yes. five, six, seven months in. Any thoughts about why? Exactly. 
why it came up then as opposed to earlier? I have no idea. I, I've thought about that. And the the first person that we saw um, seemed to have no issues with it, no problem. Um, the second person that we saw, which is the one that had the concern, didn't bring it up until the second or third time we had seen her. And I don't know what triggered it for her, but we had actually mentioned like the other person in the practice didn't seem to have any issue. And she kind of blew it off as like, well, she's newer. And I'm thinking, maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> so, okay. So, so, but, then, uh, yeah. so then they said that uh, there's an increased risk of stillbirth, um, but you asked questions about it and they, she didn't know why or, or, or couldn't quote you any data. Bliss and I see this all the time. Bliss loves to use the word regurgitating information because they just, they learn something somewhere and then they just keep regurgitating it. Never really have the intellectual curiosity to ask why, why is that? Would you care, by the way, to share how old you were in 2021, just for the people listening? When I gave birth to Andromeda, I was 50. There you go. Okay. Because people are going to wonder, well, was she 36? Was she, you know, so the, right. <laughs> so I would just like to address that for a second, that that all things being equal, the, the pregnancy is progressing normally, then, you know, maybe somebody wants to do a little bit more surveillance of the, of the blood flow to the baby or the placenta, that's reasonable. But, to, but if that's all normal, then the risk of stillbirth isn't increased. It's only increased if there's a potential problem, which you didn't have, or they weren't looking for. And so, yeah, again, this okay. is the kind of thing where it's just, once it gets in somebody's head, it's very hard for them to get it out of their head. And clearly this was this was clouded their whole ethics and decision-making process and without any real evidence. And that's that, you know, I didn't know this story until just now because I hadn't talked to you about this before. And, and I'm really bothered by by that sort of thing, you know. The fast Yeah, and I don't know, I don't know the state laws there. Like here in California, there's no real law about advanced maternal age. And the way that we feel about it is if you have a mom who doesn't, you know. Low risk pregnancy means that the baby and the mom are low risk enough for it to be a safe option. So if you as a 50 year old, I'm, I'm 51, I had to think about how old I was. I'm totally healthy. I can't get pregnant because I've gone through menopause, but I don't have a heart condition. I don't have diabetes. I don't have any of those things. So if we know that you're a low risk, healthy woman who's sustaining a pregnancy and makes it to her delivery time, there's no reason for us to believe that you're any higher risk to have an out-of-hospital community-based birth than anyone else. Because the fact of the matter is, is that getting pregnant, there is a risk that we sometimes have a baby that doesn't make it. And that's just part of life, you know? And so giving you informed consent, you know, sometimes the conversations that we have to have with people knowing that we have to give them all the information is sometimes hard because we do have to put these little, you know, doubts in your mind, which is, you know, for midwives and providers like Stu and I, it's a bummer, you know, because all we want to do is like, yeah, there's no reason for us that anything could go wrong. But if you did have an adverse event and we didn't tell you, that would be an issue as well. And that's part of, you know, being a medical provider. Uh, but it is one of the reasons why I don't want to practice inside of a group practice. Exactly what you're describing is that you had someone who was totally comfortable with it. And then you had another provider who wasn't. And then the decision was made as a group 
discontinue care with you, even though there was people who felt comfortable. And so the care that happens sometimes in this group dynamic gets diluted because you have to make everybody feel comfortable. And that's exactly what happened in your situation. Yeah, just just like what you described yeah. with the with the IV for Tavi and and what you said here, I made a note of the fact you said the what ifs. And it's really an interesting thing to live in a world where you're always concerned about what ifs, because then you're living based in fear. And, you know, I understand that that's our job is to watch for those sorts of things, but, but to practice in that way where everything that you do is about well, what if something goes wrong? Why are we drawing blood on you? Why are we typing crossing you when you're coming in in normal labor? Why are you peeing in a cup? Why are you doing, you know, it's, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? And and most of the time these things don't happen. And then you, but you project, project your anxieties onto the women you're caring for. And then as mammals who are anxious, labor becomes slightly more dysfunctional. I just have one other question about before you go on and tell more of the story is, did they say anything in the letter about why did they actually get specific or they just said, you know, it was just a sort of a form letter. You're dismissed. Goodbye. I don't remember exactly the wording of the letter. I was pretty perturbed at the time. Can imagine. Excuse me. Uh, but the other interesting part that I think is relevant is Derek and I are people who like to be informed. And so we went and researched the answer ourselves because we hadn't heard back from the midwife yet on whether she found it, the answer to our question. So we wanted to learn more about like, what is this increased risk? How much is the increased risk? What are the factors? What else can we learn about it? And we went to evidence-based birth site, which has a lot of great information. And we went to one of their seminars. We read up all the information. And what we found out was that the increased risk is very, very, very small. It was, don't quote me, but like half a percent or something. I mean, it was really small. And the fascinating part to me was to learn that um, as a second time mom over 35, like in my my upper years, <laughs> my <laughs> risk for stillbirth was lower than a first time mom giving birth under 35. Interesting. I guarantee you, I guarantee you those same midwives that kicked me out of their practice are accepting first time moms under 35 with no problem and not telling them, oh, you're at increased risk of stillbirth. Yeah. And that's where the discrimination, the feeling of discrimination came through for you. Yeah. 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 It is. It's flat out discrimination. If you're willing to take someone who's at higher risk than me, rid of me because your concern that higher risk, even though you'll take somebody who's at a higher risk than me. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Kelly. Thank you for correcting me. It's not, you felt discriminated against. It actually was discrimination. That's absolutely true. Okay. So uh, keep, let us know how things progressed. So, so you changed to another provider at seven months. It was an okay fit. It was good enough, better than free birth for what you guys were wanting. Yeah. And then, um, and then anything else happened during the pregnancy or would you like to, to talk about the day that you went into labor? The only other thing that I think is relevant here is that 
we, my husband and I, you know, in researching all of this stuff, we're looking at the the information and there was a lot of information that said that for older moms that the 39 week point is often the best time to deliver, right? So so we were looking at this and trying to understand that and in hindsight unfortunately bought into it a little bit. And so um, and and knew at the time that that was a somewhat fear-based decision in the sense that like, you know, we're making that that way, but kind of poshed it out. Ah, it's, you know, it's not a big deal. It's, when I know as a child development specialist that that 40-week mark is really makes a difference between 39 and 40 if it's, you know, if the baby's going to do that naturally anyway, like in brain development and everything. Anyway, so we we mm-hmm. we thought, okay, well, let's just you know kind of aim, but let's encourage her towards thirty nine if we can, and 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 see if that's you know helpful in some way. Feeling like it wouldn't hurt, so we did some acupuncture and some things to help kind of get things started and progressing. And there was some movement; she moved down a little bit more, things like that, but nothing really happened until it was close to her actual due date. Um, it was the day before that I actually went in to labor. And we actually did, I think we actually ended up having the midwife uh, try to, wasn't breaking the waters, there was something else. Sweep your membranes? Yes, thank Sweep you. Sweep your membranes? Thank you. You're welcome. We did, that, we did that twice. And it was after the second one that I think things started kind of progressing, but that was like the day before um, her due date anyway, or well. The, you know, the, the yes, 40 week number. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. yeah. So, so then things started progressing and overall it was normal for quite a while. But then the labor ended up being such that uh, it was just, it was hard. It was really close together for a long period of time. And the midwife came in and I'll, I'll use the word accused me of pushing like way too early. And I was like, I'm not pushing. My body is doing this. <laughs> this is not me saying, I think I'm going to push now. This is mm-hmm. my body trying to get this baby out and something's off. Like couldn't tell exactly what, but like it wasn't wasn't working right and my and my body was trying in in hindsight this is what I know like it wasn't like she wasn't coming out right and so the my body was like we gotta push harder like we gotta we gotta get her out of there um and so it was really uncomfortable to be told that I was you know like doing something purposefully when I was like no like this is this is my body trying to work through this and trying to figure out you know, how to effectively birth this baby. <laughs> so that was, that was not helpful. <laughs> and um, it got things, things progressing. We had a birth tub, got in it for a while, got out of it for a while. Um, and some point it was just, it was a long time and I was in a lot of pain and just feeling like, okay, something needs to shift. And so I would call in the midwife because she was over sitting somewhere else. I don't know, doing her thing. She was nowhere around (laughs) until I summoned her. And so she'd come in and I'd ask her for my options and she would give me like three options. And 
I don't remember exactly what they were. Some of them, I think one of them ended up being kind of a homeopathic um, option that was supposed to help for pain, but it also makes you drowsy, um, which in hindsight was not a good choice for me. Um, but it was kind of the only option that made sense out of the one she had given me. Um, and each time she always says, or we could go to the hospital. And I was like, no, <laughs> that, that's not the option I choose. Let's, let's work with this. Like this baby's okay to be born at home. Let's work with this. Um, but each time she gave me the option she wanted me to choose from. She did not give me the full range of here's what's available to you. And in the moment, I wasn't necessarily aware of that until the second or third time I'd asked her. And then she's giving me additional options. And I'm thinking, why didn't you tell me that two, three hours ago? Like when I could have chosen that and not gone through all this extra time where this poor baby is trying to get out and she's stuck. She's like, she's, she's having troubles. What was the option that she gave you that would have been helpful earlier? In the end, we did choose to break the membranes. Okay. Um, and I know that's, you know, that there's a lot of pros and cons. In the mm -hmm. end, that was what helped shift things for this baby to be able to get out. And, uh, and, and within, I think an hour of that, she was, she was born. Um, Great. So that, that was the piece. My frustration at the time though, was you're not letting me choose. You're not giving me all the options, which is one of the things we had agreed on when we were you know, had prenatal visits and we're talking through things is that she right. would give us all the options and then we could choose. Right. Right. And that is not what happened. And you said and it was a really long, happen. yeah, you said it was a really long time because you had experienced labor before. So you have that to compare it to how, how long are we talking about that? You were having these really intense, close contractions where you felt like your body was wanting to push. Many hours. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I don't know the exact number. <laughs> I was okay. nowhere near paying attention to time, but okay. <laughs> um, many hours of pretty, very close together, intense. Like my whole body was squeezed, like and trying to get her out. In the end, she was asynclitic. So she was off kilter. Say it. Did I say it wrong? How does it? Asynclitic. Asynclitic. Thank you. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> I've been trying to get the word just by looking at it. <laughs> so, um, which I wish the midwife had said something about ahead of time because she should have known that. Um, I think, like, I think you can tell that usually. And, you know, looking back, like doing acupuncture and trying to get the baby to move down before she was in the right position was a mistake that I, that I would not make again. <laughs> That was something that I think, you know, is one of those things where we just kind of are doing like, oh, hey, yeah, let's do our thing without thinking through, okay, if she's not quite in the right position yet, and we're trying to move her down, like she could get stuck or, and I don't know if stuck is the right word, but that's kind of what it felt yeah. like. Like she's, yeah. she's in a position where she's not able to get through very easily. Um, yeah. So I'm going to break down ACE. I'm going to break down being asynclitic for our listeners a little bit, just because there might be people that don't totally understand. So asynclitic means, you know, there's a diameter in, towards the back of the baby's skull that's optimal because it's the smallest diameter. So when a baby's head is nicely tucked and it's coming directly into the pelvis, you know, it, it's the smoothest kind of transition. 
And people have often heard me talk about like with each mom and baby, it's like a lock and key, right? So it's the same pelvis for you. You've already had a baby come through that pelvis, but this is a different baby and it has to navigate your pelvis to figure out that's where the molding comes in and your, and your bones are opening and all of that. But if the baby comes in cockeyed, so if it's kind of tilted to one side, we have a larger diameter that's trying to come through the pelvis and it often ends up having what we call, I don't love this term, but dysfunctional labor pattern where it's just not forward, straightforward. Sometimes it's like you explained where these contractions are very close together and they're really trying to change what's happening. And sometimes we have contractions that just space out, peter out, they're not coming close together. So we're not seeing this normal, straightforward labor pattern. And that's exactly what you explained. Unfortunately, asyncliticism is not always that easy to be able to detect from the outside. People who have really good skills of being able to feel on the inside where the bones are in the baby's skull can be able to assess that. But just by looking at your belly, where the head is angled is not always the easiest. Not to say that there aren't some master midwives who might be able to figure that out, but it is a very honed skill. So I just kind of wanted to to clarify that, but that sounds really hard. Sounds like you had a really hard labor the second time and probably weren't expecting that. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and thank you for that clarification. I this case, they could see that the baby was a little bit at an angle. Like they've they've mentioned that like off okay. and on different mm-hmm. times. So they kind mm-hmm. of had that, but I didn't mm-hmm. know the term. I didn't know the nuances yeah. of that until afterwards when I was like looking back and trying to learn. But I think too, like right when she was finally starting to come, felt like her head was so big. And I knew, I knew that this was a facade. Like it was just like the way, you know, like how it felt in the moment that she actually didn't have a too big head, you know, like it wasn't going to be too big to birth kind of thing. But I, I mentioned something in the moment about, oh my God, this like baby has a big head or something like that. And the midwife said something about like, you know, well, then we might have to transfer, you know, basically like if her head's, you know, too big, then her shoulders aren't going to come out or something along those lines. And I balked at it and she said, I've done this before. And I snapped back, so have I. <laughs> and I was like, leave me alone. Like, like, and not really leave me alone. Like, like, but give me a break. <laughs> I know it's not too big. I'm just in the moment of trying to get it through my vagina and my cervix. I'm like, like, it feels big. Let me bench. Yeah, this is intense. It would be really interesting for, for those of us that practice to have somebody videotaping us. And so we could look back and critique ourselves to see how, what faces we're making, what comments we're making, you know, what, what we're actually doing. Now, I think in medical school, they did interview, they did film us taking histories and then they would critique us, mm. critique us. And this was way back in the eighties. So I'm sure that they probably do that now, but I think Sometimes we say and do stuff. We don't even know that we're saying and doing it, or we're just creatures of habit. We do it. We do it all the time. We say things and we may think that we're being lighthearted or funny, but it's being taken the wrong way. And for, you know, for that, at that moment, for her to say something about a shoulder dystocia or or something was probably not the right thing to say. And I bet if you asked her, she probably has no recollection whatsoever of even saying stuff like that. 
I would like to ask a question real quickly because maybe I missed it, but yeah. but you said something about why were they trying? Why were you trying to get delivered at thirty nine weeks? Why did you do, do occupy? Why did you do that as opposed to just yeah. waiting? Increased risk of stillbirth. This much? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and in hindsight, it's I would not I would not do it again. It was like I said, we acknowledged to each other that there. Oh, there's, you know, it's kind of a fear-based decision, you know, but, but we're kind of like, ha ha ha, like, yeah, it's a little bit of that, but yeah, it's not a big deal. And yet looking back, like, no, it was a big deal. And we really needed to just let her come at us. Right. Because maybe by forcing her to come early or whatever else, she wasn't, she was asynclitic. She wasn't ready. Exactly. To do it. And so yeah. every, every intervention, this, I just want to reiterate for, for you and for the, our, our fellow travelers is that. Every intervention, even well-intentioned ones, always have a ripple effect. They all there's always something. Sometimes we can see it, sometimes we can't see it, sometimes we might see it 20 years from now. But every time we do something to what Mother Nature has planned, sometimes it works out for the advantage, obviously. Sometimes you can save a life or you you create penicillin or you do something that that does good. But all those, even the good things will have consequences downstream when you mess with the design that Mother Nature put into play. And as Bliss said earlier, no matter what you do, you're going to have bad outcomes on times, whether you intervene early or whether you let nature do its course, you're sometimes going to have outcomes that are unfortunate. And that's what happens. But I just, as the older I get and the more I watch labor, the more stories I hear from people. And I think stories is such a great way for people to learn. And that's why we have, that's why our podcast, we do this every now and then. Uh, these are the things that, that have taught me to, you know, so much unlearning the things that I had, that I had learned in medical school and residency that, you know, you have to do these things. And, and again, I get back to the idea of them trying to stick Tavi with the, with the IV and cause it's so important. We have to have one and, oh, we can't get it. So I guess it's not that important. And it's just perfect. It's just a, it's a perfect example of, of the futility of man and of the medical model, trying to control everything and causing chaos in the process. Yeah. And I love, Stu, that you highlighted like how much we learn from hearing people's stories. And some of it is just like, how can we be better care providers in terms of like safety and, you know, protocols and stuff like that. But there is, there is such a beautiful feedback that you as a birthing woman is sharing with these little things that people can say that can really undermine your trust in your body and your trust in this process. and you know, your satisfaction. I mean, this is the moment your baby is entering the world, you know, and to have this doubt thrown in there when there was no clinical indication of anything really going, you know, wrong where she needed to step in. I think that's so good for us to hear and to, and to be, and to remember to be mindful, you know, about what we're saying to you and how we're saying it. I think that's one of the biggest things that I noticed between the birthing experiences and the birth teams in the two is, you know, Tavi had a known risk factor, if you will, multiple risk factors with regard to, you know, potentialities <laughs> on, on a data level. And, and I don't recall the only person in, in any of our team that I recall saying anything that was doom and gloom was the genetic counselor. And they were awful. <laughs> they were horrible. And we just dismissed everything they said and went on with the rest of the team <laughs> because it was just not helpful at all. 
and gave us inaccurate information. So, <laughs> whereas everybody else on the team was like, yeah, we can do this and let's get more information. If, you know, if somebody wasn't sure about something, they asked questions and, you know, went through and, and got information. And even Dr. Solansky, who, who, you know, was not super excited about the idea of home birth, was able to honestly assess and say, I don't have a reason to tell you no. Um, and so for us, that was like, great, <laughs> like, then we're good. But yeah, so I just wanted to connect that, that piece of, you know, it's, it's such a, such a different experience having a team yeah. that's like, how can, you know, that I think you, you had a good term for this, uh, Dr. Stu, something about intellectually inquisitive or something like that. It was, um, yeah, they're so not, important. they're not right. Right. So she, why don't we wrap up her birth story and you tell us like how it resolved her head came through and then she, you said she went, she went shooting out. She, she, yeah. She shot out after that. She's like, I'm out of here. Like, thank you, mom. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, so, so after that, I was holding her and I put her on my chest and I was holding her briefly. They were worried because she wasn't breathing. Um, so she still had a heartbeat, but she wasn't breathing. Um, and we had planned to do what is typically referred to as delayed cord clamping. It's just, you know, not cutting the cord early um, <laughs> and wanted to be able to, you know, allow all of the, the blood flow to get back into her body and, you know, have her have that peace. Um, but because she wasn't breathing, the midwife was telling us that she had to cut the cord. And this didn't make sense to me at the time because I couldn't think through all the logic of it in the moment. I just given birth after a really hard labor and I finally had my baby. <laughs> didn't resonate with me that like why you have to cut the cord and she wasn't able to give me an answer. It was just, I have to do this. So she ended up cutting the cord and then, you know, took the baby over to a table we had set up nearby um, and was able to put a, a little tube um, down, you know, into her throat and and get some guck out that she had inhaled. Lee. Which I, oh, go ahead. It's called the Dali. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> it's named, it's named, it's named after, it's named after a patriarchal obstetrician from, from the night, from the 20th century. <laughs> of course it is. They're all named yeah. after doctors. Yeah. <laughs> so she was able to get this stuff out. And her APGAR scores went higher within a, you know, short time after that. Um, and she was breathing again. Um, so that resolved that she just had guck in her throat, which in hindsight, I expect that a lot of that could have been related to the intensity of the labor um, and how long she had to stay in this position and like probably aspirated stuff that if I had not tried to push the 39 weeks, if, you know, some of these other things um, hadn't been done, I suspect my own feeling that that may not have been the case for her and that it might have been a much smoother birth for her and for me. Um, yeah, that's, that's my own hindsight insight. What, what I think we had talked about prior to coming on the air was the fact that, you know, she has a heart beating, so she's exchanging oxygen with you. She's getting her nutrients and her oxygen with you, even if she's not taking breaths right now. And so pretty much the dumbest thing that you could possibly do is to cut the cord. And yet I think that that's done because again, that's how you were trained 
to take the baby to the warmer or take the baby someplace where then you can then give it oxygen, which instead of just doing the delete right on your chest or laying right next to you in the bed or wherever you were, I don't know if you're on the floor or in the tent. I was in the pool. In the pool. Okay. So, you know, it's a little bit harder when you're in the pool, but maybe getting you out of the pool and having you, if there's time and just sit down on the floor or whatever, but doing it while the baby's still connected would have made much more sense. And before you came on today, I quoted an article as if we need articles to tell us that babies getting their own blood is, is a good thing. But, you know, until science tells us that, I guess we don't know it. So that's sarcasm for anybody who's not (laughs) seeing my face right now. But yes, that that was, that's not the right thing to do. The right thing to do is if your baby needs a little bit of resuscitation, especially if it's not full on CPR type stuff to just leave the chest compression, leave the baby, leave Mm -hmm. the baby alone on the mom and do what you have to do right there, right there. Yeah. And, uh, and we actually talked about this too, that the current NRP neonatal resuscitation program guidelines actually are catching up with that, you know, until the last couple of years, they were still doing, recommending what the hospital was doing, which is to cut the cord and separate mom and baby. But now the recommendation is if at all possible, keep them together. And you know, I wanted to highlight something that you said and and Dr. Stu said before you came on that I think is such a big part of this is that you had an instinct and a, and a, and a lot of the decisions that you made, although you you do like to research and you do like to know information, when it comes down to it, you trust your gut and you trust your instincts. And Stu had said something about that as well. It's like, you know, that's how a lot of us can do make decisions. And I think that as a culture, we're moving so far away from that and we're outsourcing all, you know, like Google and doctors and science and all of that. And the thing to remember is that, you know, there is something valid and innate about us making decisions that feel right for us, whether we want to base that on science or whether we don't, if that's just a decision that we're like, this feels right for me, that that is a valid way of making decisions. And I think you knew in that moment that this wasn't the right thing for you and your baby. And, you know, unfortunately as providers, we are human and we do rely on the things that make us feel safe to provide the care. And so sometimes that might mean making decisions that are in conflict. And, you know, the whole, the whole time that you're talking about your birth story, what, what I was feeling is that it just felt like wasn't, unfortunately, because of limited time and and limited resources, you just didn't have a good fit. And so how much of that actually affected your labor as well and how things progressed? Because if you don't feel safe and like you have somebody that you can really, like you feel like you really can rely on for their recommendations and stuff. It can affect the mental state of how you're feeling in your labor as well and how your labor progresses. That totally makes sense. And, and there was definitely a level of like, it'll be more helpful to have her there than not. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Phase that we were at by the time it got to the birth. Um, And it was, it was, it was likely more helpful than not. She was, yeah, I don't, I don't want to diss her as far as like, she, she knew her skills. She was able to help, you know, get the stuff out of the baby's throat and, you know, those kinds of things. Like I'm very grateful for, you know, all of the things that she did to, to support. So I, I want to be careful that, you know, 
all of the the challenges, you know, don't dismiss the the real benefits of having her there too. And and you know, she was not incompetent by any means. Yeah. She, you know, she was. I think she's a good midwife, and and it wasn't the right match for us. Right. And yet, that was what we had available. And what was fascinating is, you know, weeks later in kind of some of the after visits, I'll, I'll get back to the rest. Of, there was a little bit more about the birth too, but weeks later in some of the after visits, she mentioned us. Yeah. I was just afraid that you were going to be one of those people that would just go off and do a free birth. So that's kind of why it took you. <laughs> she was right. So <laughs> really on, on par with us either. So it was kind of, eh. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because being here in Santa Barbara in LA, there's, I think at one point someone told me there's 65 licensed midwives, not everybody's practicing, but there's a lot of options in LA. And here in Santa Barbara, there's a group practice with five midwives at the birth center that also does home birth. And then there's me and one other midwife that are in Santa Barbara. So I think that we don't have the luxury too, of always being able to match that perfectly as we could when you have more options. And I'm sure that that's the case in a lot of cities around the globe, even, you know, where there's just not a lot of options and you may not have the benefit of being able to pick someone that feels like that perfect match, but it, you're deciding of whether or not you, you know, want to either have something at the hospital or have a provider with you or do a free birth. And that's all of those options should be available to us, you know? So you said you had one more thing you wanted to share about the birth and then we probably should wrap up we've had such a great chat but we've we uh (laughs) we're going a little long (laughs) okay (laughs) i figured between the two stories it's so much to tell yeah and then we always have all kinds of things you want to say so yes (laughs) i think that the other pieces that were relevant afterwards was you know because the midwife was focused on andromeda trying to you know get the gunk out of her the second midwife that was there to support also, which you know, we were told originally there was one for the mom, one for the baby, kind of, you know, is how they set it up. But both of them were so focused on Andromeda and trying to kind of tag team address her needs. And and were really kind of, I want, they weren't panicked, but they were in high, like kind of, oh my God mode, <laughs> you know, and weren't necessarily in a Zen space while they were <laughs> going through this. Better yeah. for worse, but that's, you know. <laughs> and um, during that time, the doulas that we had with us were noticing that I was losing quite a bit of blood. Um, I was still in the pool and it was getting pretty dark. And, and I believe one of the doulas actually finally said something to the midwives, if I recall correctly. And so they finally came over and after they brought Andromeda back to me, then Stated, stated, I'm going to give you Pitocin, okay, because that's going to help. And and the reason she did that was because I had been so against Pitocin before the birth <laughs> mm-hmm. and telling her flat out that I don't want it, I don't want it, I don't want it. I think she was worried that I didn't want it after either. And I wasn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't worried about it imp- impeding the birth at that point. So yeah, that was right. I wasn't worried about the cascade. <laughs> we were past the birth part. So I had no problem with that to help you know, try to stop the the bleeding. And, um, and so we did that. We finally got me out of the tub and onto, we had a kind of a futon lay down and which is where I gave birth to Tavi actually. So <laughs> we were on the same futon. Sweet. <laughs> <Excuse me. laughs> and, but ended up doing some 
IV um, saline, I believe it was just saline, and did two full IVs because I was still getting a little loopy. I couldn't stand up. Um, and it was just lightheaded and kind of, yeah, not fully present. I think, you know, in hindsight too, the two doses of the medicine I got that makes me drowsy, I'm really susceptible to drowsy things like Dramamine and stuff like that. So I think that on top of it, in hindsight, it's not something I would choose again because then I was loopy on top of lightheaded on top of intense labor. And it was just a, not a very good combination. Um, hindsight is 2020. So, right, right. There's so many things I look back and go, oh, okay, I would do that differently. <laughs> Which I think is why it's helpful to talk and share these stories, right? Is to look and see yeah. what, you know, what worked and what didn't and what would I change? <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, it it was it was kind of like I was not in a great space and couldn't even get up and walk with help until sometime the next morning. Then finally Derek was able to help me like, you know, make sure I could get to the bathroom safely and back. Um yeah. but it was And that sounds um, very that sounds very um likely when you have a hemorrhage which sounds like what you were describing. And it sounds like that was managed from, from what you shared so far appropriately with the Pitocin and the IV bags and all of that. And there are, you know, it's very common that if you lose a lot of blood, you know, some women will lose a lot of blood and they won't have that shocky response and other women will lose just a little bit. So it's just how your body compensates and how well it can manage that. But that sounds like it was definitely managed as you said, she's got great skills and she, she managed that appropriately. Yeah. yeah the only thing that you, you mentioned, uh, Kelly, was that maybe some, they weren't really paying attention to you for a little while. Right. And, and maybe if they had gotten you out of the tub before the placenta came out and were keeping an eye on you, it might've, might've been better controlled because once, once you start to hemorrhage, then it's, then you're, then you're chasing the eight ball, so to speak, you're getting, you're behind. So you've got to, you want to, you want to stay ahead of it. And, yeah. you know, that, but that happens, that happens. We're human. And sometimes you just have to surrender and you can't, you know, a lot of us like to control everything around us and we can't. And, yeah. uh, this, these things happen at home. They happen in the hospital. As we talked about several times during this conversation, you know, sometimes things just happen and well, there isn't a reason and it's not anybody's fault. And it just, it just does happen. So, yeah. and how are the kids now? They're good. Andromeda is 18 months old um, and thriving. Uh, she has some like food allergies, sensitivity stuff. I don't know if it has anything to do with any of the birth processes or not um, and results of things. Uh, so I did have end up taking antibiotics within like a week of the birth. And I don't know how much of that was due to where I was with birthing process with other things going on and whatnot. But that could impact her flora too and her gut biome. So yeah, that that is a journey in and of itself. But other than that, she's like developmental milestones. Aside from rolling over, she had trouble rolling over and still is awkward at it. At 18 months, like she still kind of gets her shoulder under and her is like, eh, but she can do it now. Everything well, well, else like I'm, skyrocketed. I'm, I'm 66. And sometimes I have trouble rolling over too. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kelly, thank you so much for coming.
coming on and being so vulnerable and sharing your story with us. We so it's been lovely to catch up and and hear about your experiences. And gosh, Tavi's being seven. Just it's so amazing how life just continues to move forward, right? Yeah. 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 It's great. And I and I so appreciate the 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 non-fear-based approach that you guys brought to me in the in that first birth and and showed me how it could be. <laughs> um, and and it gave me an idea of, you know, like how it can be such a beautiful thing without fear. And I really, really, really appreciate that. Well, the feeling is mutual because I have to tell you that you were a great teacher for us as well. And you continue to do so because I sort of bring, I bring up your birth a lot of times, just specifically talking about the Down syndrome and the home birth. When I talk about, well, why does a type one diabetic, why can't she deliver at home? Or why is somebody with hypertension can't deliver at home? Not preeclampsia, but hypertension. And I, you know, and, we, and I bring up the fact that, yeah, and occasionally a baby with, you know, a certain anomaly that isn't going to be a problem like just a club foot or a or a cleft lip can they why do they have to deliver in the hospital why why can't they still have the home birth and if they need to go afterwards then they can go non-emergently to the hospital and be seen so your story continues to educate not just birth workers but but families so uh, we're really appreciative when i heard your story because i wasn't there when i heard your story i was in you know tears of joy and i called uh, mm-hmm. dr bradley right away because you know she was involved and you know, everybody went, everybody went a little bit maybe beyond their comfort zone. These, these people like Sklansky and Bradley, and like you said earlier, and, but they, they, they honored your informed decision-making and that's uh that's a great thing. It was huge. It was huge. I, I really, I really appreciated it. And I look back and think too, like if Tavi was born in a hospital, he likely would have gone directly to the NICU because there was pulse ox fluctuations there, you know, and he would have been separated from me. He would have had needles poked in him all over the place, more than what they tried to do at the ER. He would have had monitors beeping at him. He would, And then we'd have to wait until he was somebody's version of good enough to actually discharge him from there. Mm-hmm. As opposed to what we did, which was kind of the opposite approach in that unless he needs to be admitted, then we have him out and we have him home and we have him safe with us. And, you know, in this case, he didn't need to be admitted. Um, Once the cardiologist was able to see him, go home, you're fine. And so I think to me, you know, looking at it uh, that way, that's a, that's a big difference that, uh, that I see as well. And potentially the same with Andromeda's birth uh, and her aspiration of fucking stuff during the birth and, you know, how funky everything got. There was the potential that Somebody would have said, hey, we need to take her over here. We need to keep her for a while and just make sure she's okay kind of thing. And, uh, and you know, NICUs are amazing <laughs> for everything they do for so many babies. Um, and yet I feel like in, in our case, like they weren't needed and the babies were safe at home with the support they got. And I'm appreciative of that, that I feel like was available because we chose the home birth. Yeah, might not have been available if we had birthed in a hospital. That's really wise what you said, because, you know, it's a certainty. It's not even a question. It's a certainty that Tavi would have gone to the NICU Mm -hmm. and it would and would have probably been in baby jail, as we love to call it, for for a while. (laughs) Right. Right. 
Yeah. So thank goodness you didn't have to experience that. Well, sweetheart, we're going to wrap up the podcast so you can um, drop off. But thank you so much again for being here with us. And I'm sure everybody's going to really enjoy your story. And till next time. Thank you so much. Bye, Kelly. Bye, sweetheart. Well, that was amazing. Yeah, I'm feeling just really warm feelings. Think, (laughs) you know, recapping Tavi's birth again. Yeah, that was such a wild day. One of these days on the podcast, I'm going to have to tell the other side of the story because it was it was really a wild, (laughs) one of the most wild birthdays that I've ever experienced. So I had wanted to read this thing from David Hayes. I uh, I read it to you, and I just I read it to other couple other people, and I just think speaking of warm and fuzzies, it's just a it's just a lovely way to kind of look at life for people who don't know but people who don't know who david is david is a an elder statesman like me yeah. who, who is a breach practitioner who is part of the breach without borders team and goes around the country around the world actually uh, teaching breach delivery he's kind of a a wild soul very interesting guy and so he did what's that bliss he is like you in a lot of ways and different and 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 different in 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 many ways as well. But uh, yeah, but he you know he's sort of like a off the beat you know philosopher poet type kind of guy. As we get older, we tend to wax philosophical. And so yeah, go ahead, Bliss, and read this. We'll send, we'll end with this, and I'll just say um, as always, great seeing you. So you too. Let's hear what David had to say. In the past two days, I've lost two dear friends, and and David Crosby. My life feels like nothing so much as a sandcastle slowly being washed back into the sea. But that's not a bad thing. More and more, it feels natural, comforting even. Everyone, whether you're 6, 16, or 60, cherishes the memory that defines your life. And we are all still collecting and recording those memories. But the older you get, the fewer people in your world share those memories, and they become increasingly less relevant to the here and now. When you have no one who shares your memories, they isolate you rather than connecting you. You become an anachronism. Say it again. (laughs) What? Anachronism? Yeah. To all those who have no way to emotionally connect to your experience. And increasingly, you become less able to connect to their experience, even though you continue to share it, live, live through it. You don't connect to these new experiences because they aren't relevant to the new world you've you've created your entire life. The world that is your point reference no longer exists. And so the prospect of losing the bonds of this mortal coil becomes increasingly comforting. I can think of no more horrific fate than to live in a world I can't connect with, don't really understand, that doesn't really matter to me, and have no one who can possibly relate to my reality. I will continue happily forward for many more years with the knowledge that when I'm no longer relevant, it will be a comfort for my tenure to come to a close. And the most I can offer those who come after me is the assurance that you can live your best life. And when your time comes, though it may not feel like it now, it will be a comfort to you too. And the sand from our castles will live on to create lives and worlds we can't and won't really want to comprehend. Amen. <laughs> Amen, David Hayes. Thank you so much for your all words right, well, of wisdom. And thank you. Thank you all for listening. Please support our sponsors, Element and Needed. And uh, we'll see you next week. Okay. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 